Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here at our second service. Uh, today we are continuing on with our sermon series, uh, The Power of Don't, uh, which we started back in July. We looked at just some of the different verses in the Bible that just encourage us not to do some things, but to do other things in their place. And you're going to look up today and think to yourself, Oh no, the pastor's going to start harping on about money this morning. So as you know me, I don't harp on about money at all, to be honest with you. But uh, today, this is the subject uh, and stuff. And often at times, we can be put off sometimes with church because uh, the, all they seem to do is talk about money. A friend of mine sent me a video of a church in London and quite a big church and they collected the offering in the bucket. They brought it to the front to the pastor. He looked inside the offering and he said, that's not enough, send it round again. And so they sent the offering bucket back round uh, the church. I don't know if I should do that here, but we know we're not doing it here. He sent the offering bucket round again and then, uh, and then came again to the front. He looked inside the offering bucket. He said, it's not enough. So he sent the offering bucket back round for a third time. And hopefully that would be enough for him and stuff. But I'm sure the church was there. And sometimes we can be put off a little bit, can't we? By, uh, you know, just sometimes the way churches get on over money and stuff. But obviously because we're doing the power of don't, we wanted to look at one verse in Hebrews uh, that simply talks about not having a love for money. Don't love money. And to, to begin with, I'm going to give you three quotes. Uh, to start us off by way of introduction. The first one he says from John MacArthur, he said, 16 of the 38 parables of Jesus deal with money. One out of 10 verses in the New Testament deals with that subject. Scripture offers about 500 verses on prayer, fewer than 500 on faith, and over 2,000 on money. The believer's attitude towards money and possessions is determinative. Tim Keller said this, he said the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. And the final quote from G.K. Chesterton when it says there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. There was something that we can all relate to today when we talk about money or when we talk about possessions. If we're being totally honest, all of us would say whether we want to admit it publicly, if only I just had a little bit more money. I would be, be able to do this, or if only I had that, or if only I had a bigger house, or if only I had a better car, if only I had a better job, and, and probably we would all be a little bit like that. We would look at that and say, a little bit more money would probably help us. Writing to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13, these two verses say, don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you, I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? If you know anything of the letter to the Hebrews, it has one theme. Uh, the theme is simply Jesus is better. 
It talks about the old covenant uh, versus the new covenant. The new covenant is tied up in Jesus, obviously coming as the saviour of the world. And the letter is written uh, to the Hebrews, to those who are Jewish believers, and they were trying to explain that Jesus is better. And so the final chapter here with these words in identifies how that works out in a community of believers because chapters 1 to 12 grounds the believer in that first great commandment which is loving God, which is really our vertical expression of our faith. But our, our, our expression of loving God is also expressed in, in loving others as well in the community of believers that say we are here as church. And so the final chapter 13 exhorts a believer to fulfill that second great commandment by loving your neighbour. And it teaches us things about our attitude towards family, uh, marriage, money, uh, church attendance and things like that. And so that's what it teaches us in this chapter. Now times haven't changed much from the first century to the 21st uh, because much like human nature hasn't changed much at all. I mean... There will be a, some of us in here, and I say so, some of us in here are spenders, aren't we? Some people, they like to spend money, like to go shopping and, you know, and uh, to go and, and men sometimes, because bad, bad as women, we're not going to just associate this to women and stuff, because men can be just as bad, they can be set spenders. Some people are savers, they don't want to spend any money, they want to save it all. Some people like me are what you call frugal. Now frugal simply means tight. It just means that simply, listen, if you can save a pound, it's worth saving. If petrol is three pence cheaper 25 miles away, I'm driving a car 25 miles away, that's what I do. My family call me the yellow label man because I like to go into Tesco's and Max's and all those and I look at something and say, oh, we don't got the price of that and stuff. And you know you go around those with the yellow labels, still fresh, it's still in date and stuff and so you get those and you buy those and, and that's it and stuff and so I would be like that some of you are like that as well you like to save some money uh, for that but that's the way people are the jackpot for the Euro millions last Tuesday night was just over 41 million pound at the start of June the first week in June it was 111 million pound now, why do I say this? Well, because people obviously buy the tickets because in their mind, they believe somebody's got to win it, so it could be me. Now, these are your odds of winning it. Let me just tell you what the odds are of winning it. The odds of winning it are 1 in 139,838,160. That's your chances of winning it. But if you do win it, the interest alone on it is six and a half million pound a year. I mean, you could just live on the interest, couldn't you? You wouldn't actually need to touch the 111 million. You could literally just live on, on the interest and stuff. Most importantly, and more important than anything, the tithe on it would be 11.1 million. Imagine that. Imagine one of you winning 111 million and the tithe was 11.1 million to the church. Imagine that. Imagine how many cruises I could go on. Imagine how much Lego I could buy. Ah, oh dear. Now, listen, 
I'm a generous man. I would be fair. If you won the 111 million and it was 11.1 million, listen, we'll just round it off to 11 million, okay? I'll let you keep the other 0.1. But people do this because they think they have a chance of winning. People get obsessed with money. And there is a phrase that people say, oh, money is the root of all evil. That's not actually quite true, the quote there. It's not actually biblical. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because actually you need money. I mean, I don't want to stand up here today and people are saying, oh, the pastor's telling us all to be poor and we shouldn't own anything. And if we've got more than one TV in the house, we need to get rid I'm not saying any of that. This is not what this is about. This is about not loving money as a, the priority, the most important thing, because you need money, don't you? We, we have to have money, you know, to do what we do. And, and we, we do this here as a church where we, we say to you about what we do here as a church, you need money for. Earlier in July this year, we had a visit. So, you know, we've got the charity that works alongside the church, and we had a visit from somebody, a Christian trust, a representative of a Christian trust we had written to. So I thought to myself, I thought this would be great. He's coming out here. He wants to see the work. And always know when you get him out here, I could turn on the charm a little bit. No, okay. Well, anyway, he comes out and he says to me, he reads our application. Well, I say, reads my application. I can't even blame Paula for this. He reads my application and says, your application is rubbish. The work you do is excellent, but your application is rubbish. So he told us how to write the application so they would give us the money, basically. And they gave us £10,000, which was brilliant. So they gave us £10,000 in July, and then they promised to give us £10,000 next July, and promised to give us £10,000 the July after that. So you need money to do what you do, because that pays for all the stuff that we do here. Now, I want to quash any rumours that may be going around, because some people have started to talk and stuff, that getting that £10,000 at the start of July is just coincidental with the time that I go on a cruise every year, okay? <laughs> just want to clear that up, because I know the way some people in this church think. You had £10,000, the pastor goes away on a cruise. I know, doesn't work like that, okay? Just want to quash that rumour now here this morning. But, but that's where we are with money. And the, the danger is sometimes is having that unhealthy desire for wealth that, that leads to the ruin of many people's lives. See, the Bible repeatedly says what may appear to be conflicting things about wealth. And there's a tension with it sometimes that you have to find in the middle. Uh, on the one hand, it says that wealth is good, it's a blessing from God, and, and we should be grateful that God has given us what we have. But as with many biblical principles, there is that balance that we have to hold that in opposite, that we mustn't get obsessed. And the way to not get obsessed is what the verse says here when it talks about contentment, when it talks about being satisfied with what you have. You know, that's the way. Now, all of us in here, we will all have something, but we will all be different in, in what makes us happy, what, what satisfies us. And, and we will all earn different money at the job that we do. We will all live in different sized houses. We'll drive different sized cars. We'll go to a different place on knowledge. Baby, different for each and every one of us. But here it says, it says, the key to it is being satisfied with what you have. And uh, actually, the Bible actually condemns laziness. It calls us to work hard to provide for our family and our own needs. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God will drop everything we need in our lap. 
You know, God provides for us. He, he, he challenges us. He commands us, in a sense, to, to get a job. If we're able to, to look after our families, that's what we're supposed to do. The actual thoughts of work hard, save well, be diligent, pursue advancement, improve your skills, invest wisely, and, and then to be grateful for what God has given us. Uh, and that's what it means to be satisfied and to be content. But what is crucial here is always our motive for seeking more money. To actually, to meet the demands of our, of our personal needs and our family needs and stuff, that, that you don't become a burden to people or society is proper. To want more money so you can give more money away is actually okay. It says, I mean, that's the, the, the thing to do. I mean, here, when it comes to, 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 to church, he said, we encourage that. And there were some sub-points I wanted to just make, just five quick ones. The first one is this. What they're teaching is being content is how to be grateful, but also how to be generous. I mean, we can be thankful. You're not thankful, in a sense, because you have more than everybody else. You're thankful for what you have. Be content, be satisfied in what you have. Now, you might look at it and say, well, no, they have more than me. Or they've got more, well, they're able to do this and stuff. But the Bible makes it clear here that actually we should be grateful in what we have. But actually, we should be generous in what we have as well. What we practice here as a church is this next one, is that we are to be wise stewards and generous givers. Here in our church, and we present these to you every year. This is the accounts of the church. Now, probably nobody has probably read this from cover to cover. As a matter of fact, the only person that's ever read this is Michael Totten, and he was in the first service, and I said that in the first service as well. These are the accounts. This is the account of every penny we spend as a church, in the church and the charity, because we believe as a church that the leadership, in particular, should be wise stewards and generous givers. So when you give us your money, it says we're actually wise with it, that we don't suddenly book ourselves a pastor's conference in the Bahamas and head off there. So that's it, we're being wise stewards, but also generous givers. And that practice is not just for churches leading, but also for us in our individual lives, that we should be wise stewards and good savers, but also generous givers as well. So we practice at the back of the, the, the book there, and you know, these on the shelf out there, you're free to take them. We're transparent with everything. We let it public. They're on the Charity Commission website. It teaches you what we believe about tithing and giving. We don't harp on about money. We don't pass the offering bucket around. Though the story at the beginning encourages me that I should pass a bucket, look in it, think, not enough, but we'll not do that here. We leave the bucket and just for people to freely give because God provides for all of our needs. But we're wise stewards with that. We're content and satisfied with what we have. You see, unhealthy obsession with money is simply closely related to discontent. This is what the Bible calls covetousness. I mean, it's one of the commandments. Do not covet. Do not desire what somebody else has. Do not look at somebody else and say, the problem is not thinking, oh, I wish I had that. The problem is looking at something else and saying, that's what would make me happy. That's what would satisfy my life. If I had that, I'd drive a wee, small, pokey car. I look sometimes at other people's cars and I'm like, I wish I had that car. I wish I had that car rather than that lawnmower that I drive, do you know what I mean? I look at it and think, but I realise actually that the danger then is to 
put that into my heart and say, I'm discontented with what I have because all a car does is take me from A to B. All a car does is serve what I do in a sense, you know, and so we can be like that. And there can be that unhealthy obsession. That's why both Old Testament and New Testament here, it talks about looking at what everybody else has and says, oh, I wish I had that. If only I had that, that would make me happy. And this is the challenge to it here in these verses. Rather than being unhappy over what we do not have, we actually should be thankful for what we do have. And then when God gives us more or doesn't give us more, we're grateful and happy for why is it we're content with what we've got. Because that's why it says the next point is simply keep your life free from the love of money. They once asked the richest man in the world, he had $4.6 billion at this particular time. And they actually asked him, he said, what would make you happier? He said, just a little bit more money. I mean, $4.6 billion, but his heart was so attached to just making it. And you know what, he'll never be happy. Because I'm sure if he got more money, he would then just look for more money. There's a discontentment there within his heart that is unsatisfied. And so it's because he loves money. And so it's that point that simply says, be content with what you have. And the context of what the, these verses are written, the people they're written to, is these people were undergoing persecution. And some of them had experienced the plundering of their goods. Some people had come in and stolen their goods or destroyed what they owned and that. And so therefore, these are why these verses are written, because they had lost everything and so suddenly thought that their lives were being built on these possessions, these things that they have. And, you know, when things get tight, we could be tempted to hang on more tightly to what is left. I mean, I do the shopping in our house and I'm 51 now and I'm entitled to have a little bit of a moan about what, whatever I want to. So when I go shopping, the first thing I do is I go home and I say to Athena, oh, do you got a price of a loaf of bread? You £1.35. I remember the days when a loaf of bread a cost you. I was going to say three shillings, but I'm not that old. He says, I remember you buy that. And what I then do, proceed to go through the next hour. She's no interest at all in the world, like, at all. And I'm just moaning on. You look at the price of those and the price of those I pay for these. And the kids want this. And, I, you know, and it used to be when they were younger, you could get like the cheaper version of it. But they've caught on now and they know when the dad's trying to trick them. So you have to pay more money for the stuff. And they just have a wee rant on about this and stuff. Because we, we live in that world at the moment, don't we? things are so unpredictable when it comes to money with mortgages and people are watching the interest rates and the cost of electrics going up and if you notice at the moment the price of the petrol is sneaking up and stuff and all of this and you know we moan about it and stuff and it affects everybody and so when things get tight you know we, we could be tempted to hang on to, to, to it because we look at it and think well I don't know what may happen I don't know if something comes along and I may need that. And, and that's what we do sometimes. And uh, The problem is, is loving money then takes a root in a heart uh, and doing the other things that matter will cease to be a priority. Because covetousness is the opposite of contentment. It's simply the desire to be obsessed with what we cannot have or somebody else has. And people will turn around and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm just, my possessions, they don't mean anything to me. You know, wait until, say, they get destroyed, or wait until they get stolen, or wait until they get plundered. 
Wait till something happens to them and that you will then see the state of your heart about what you own, about what your possessions are, about the things that belong to you. Because the problem is this, the problem is not what we own, the problem is what owns us. And so contentment has much more to do with who we are on the inside rather than what we have. The Apostle Paul had the right idea in Philippians 4 when he says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now us as good believers will always quote the last bit of that. We love the last bit of that verse. But we've always got to read the context that it's written in because it's helpful for us in our lives. Because what Paul says, he says, listen, whether I have nothing, whether I'm hungry and, and don't have absolutely anything, I'm content. Should the biggest buffet in the world be presented to me and I am full with plenty of food, I am content. And then that's why he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We read that and then we just read the last verse. He said, read it in its context. Paul says, listen, when I don't have anything, he says, I'm still content in Christ. When I have everything, I'm still content in Christ because my contentment, my satisfaction is not found in the circumstances that I'm living in by how much that I have, but actually because Christ strengthens me. And so here we see that there are two promises from God that we read in the passage and they are the foundation for contentment in this passage just so often when we're told don't love money what what we're then told is this is what we should do uh, and the second bit that we see here comes from Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 when it says be strong and courageous do not be afraid or terrified because of them for the Lord your God goes with you he will never leave you nor forsake you what the writer is saying is, listen, we can't count on material things. We shouldn't rely on them. But we can depend on God and his promises. And here in this verse, he bases it that actually, if you're content, your contentment comes from this, that God goes with you, he will never leave you, and he will forsake you. We could give up everything, sacrifice everything for the promise of those verses, that whatever we're going through, he's with us. Whatever is happening to us, he'll never leave us. Whatever's going on, he will not forsake us. And we can have full confidence of protection and provision by God. But listen, this is important. But in no respect does it guarantee that we will enjoy lives of material prosperity. There is some nonsense going around God TV and the church that God will give us everything we desire if I name it and claim it. God wants me to be prosperous. He wants to give me everything that I ask for. That is just simply not true. It's simply unbiblical. God provides for all of our needs, but I would rather take his provision of my needs and his, prote and his protection rather than anything else. So this is nowhere in the Bible that talks about how rich God wants us to be. He said, nowhere does it say that. We need, these are the promises of God. He's with us. He'll never leave us. He'll not forsake us. I love what Spurgeon says about this verse. He says, because the original Greek text says this, I will not, not leave thee, I will never, not never, forsake thee. 
is almost applying and illuminating the truth that this is what they need to hold on to. Don't love money. Be content with what you've got because this is more important. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He'll not give up on you. He will not forsake them regardless of the circumstances. And so the second verse uh, the writer uses is this one is, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And that points to the truth that real contentment only comes when we trust in God to meet our needs and be our security. He says, well, look at other things for, to be our security, won't we? Well, look at it, and, and I'm guilty of this as much as everybody else. We're presented with something, and we look at it and think, what's plan B if God doesn't come through? What, what's plan B if that promise that God makes is for everybody else but not for me? And, and we do that, and we put that in place, and yet this verse here, and it, it, it says, the Lord is my helper. Now, the word helper here was split into two parts. The first one is this. It, it just simply means that when we cry for help, God hears us. You know, if I, if I say, help! If you hear somebody cry for help, you know that there is a need. You know that somebody requires something. But the second part of the verse means this, that actually when it says the Lord is my helper, that word helper not only means the one who calls out but also the someone who runs towards that person who needs help and I thought what a wonderful thought of what God does in our life that actually when we cry for help he comes running towards us he provides what it is that we need to help us if you collapsed in church this morning uh, and you you needed medical attention he said and you had the choice between a doctor and me attending to your needs who would you pick even my own daughter wouldn't pick me you would all go for the doctor it would be like Matt get out of the way we need the doctor why because she's responding to the need for help because she's the expert God is the expert in dealing with everything we face in our lives. And when we cry for help, he runs towards those who need help. Isn't that a confident assurance that we can have today? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can mere man do to me? What can man do to me? Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our situations, regardless of what we're facing, he's our helper. He never leaves us, he never forsakes us, and he never gives up on us. Because God says he cares for us. See, so we come to this and we look at the idea, and, and we're finishing, we look at it and say, our contentment and our satisfaction does not come from our material possessions or what we own. That actually, if, if your stuff that mattered to you suddenly disappeared, I mean, God forbid, if all my Lego disappeared... What would I be able to, what would I stand for? It's just material possessions. But God will never disappear. He's always there for us. He says, and this truth with what we finish with before we come to the final song, we are convinced of these truths. The first one is this. It says, God cares for his people. We are his people. He cares for you. 
God cares for us as individuals because it's easy to sit sometimes and think that's for the person next to me. That's for the one who's going through that. It's for all of us. God cares for you and me. And finally, God cares for our community of faith because we are his community of faith. That's the truth this morning when we come to see the confident assurance we can have in what God does in our lives. Let's pray before the team comes and joins us upon the platform. Father, we thank you today. Father God, the truth that we stand on and build our lives upon, the foundation of our lives, is not what we own, is not our possessions, is not even the money in our bank account, Lord. Though all of that can be used for your glory. Father, the truth uh, of what we have is knowing that you will never leave us, you'll never forsake us, and you go with us in everything that we face. Father, what a wonderful thought of knowing that when we cry for help, you are the one that comes running to help us. Father, may we hold on to that today in everything that we are facing, in every circumstance and situation that people in this church service are facing. Father, we pray over them that the Lord is their helper, that there is no circumstance or situation that can defeat them if you are with them. And Father, we thank you for that today. We can be content for you are enough. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.